Don Goey, everybody, author of the book Mystic Cool. How are you doing, Don? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us today on the 12-Step Buddhist Podcast. Um, tell us a little bit about the book Mystic Cool and uh, just give us a summary of that. And uh, then we'll go into some of the questions that I have uh, regarding um, the neuroscience and neuroplasticity as it relates to addiction and Buddhism and that sort of stuff. Well, Mystic Cool, the cool part of Mystic Cool relates to getting us off the hot seat that stress and fear put us in, put us on. Um, stress is fear. Biologically, some form of fear needs to be present to kick us into a stress reaction. And for most Americans, that's, uh, that's a pretty chronic condition. 40% of us experience extreme stress all the time, you know, during the week, during the work week. Another 40% of us are one or two stressors away, at least that's what they report, one or two stressors away from entering that zone of extreme stress. And it's very debilitating to the brain, knocks out higher brain function, knocks out the stuff that makes you a peak performer, a creative problem solver, uh, knocks out the stuff that makes you great at relationships and, and able to maintain your own health, your own well-being. The mystic part of it is what happens when you shift out of stress. Uh, you actually transfer control of your brain from the primitive brain function that, that causes stress reactions, that reacts to your fearful thinking, your, your fearful uh, attitude, and shifts brain function to higher brain where, um, where all of those wonderful functions come back. All the things that make a human being intelligent and great and great to be in relationship with, they all come back online. And the mystical part of it is, is that science found out that the primary thing that creates that shift and gives you that power back, gives you your life back, is being at peace, is being in a dynamic state of mind that is fundamentally peaceful, which to neuroscience means you're not afraid. You're not afraid of whatever is challenging you. You're able to embrace it, move through it, and stay open to your own experiences, stay open to the people around you. You do that, you grow a great brain. So Mr. Cool's about how you, how you get there, what process you can go through to grow, grow, a, grow a great brain. And, and the wonderful news about it is is that you can, make the, you can change this very structure and chemistry of your brain in relatively You can change your brain, and that's new, that's new information, isn't it? We used to think that the – I mean, I remember hearing in college that you know, once you kill your brain cells, they don't grow back. That's right. Well, you, you, you're given kind of a, a basic set of um, brain cells. Actually, the number of brain cells we got is equal to the number of stars in the universe. We got 100 billion brain cells. But right, it used to be believed that by the time you were age six, those brain cells were set in concrete. And if you were wired for fear, if you were wired for pessimism, you were going to die whining. There's nothing you could do about it. Neuroplasticity says you can change your brain structure and your brain chemistry at any point along your lifespan, even if you're 80 years old. Now, one of the things that came up while you were describing the book was the idea that uh, fear is stress and that we measure stress. Um, you mentioned something about most of us are living in a state where we're just a couple of stress factors away a couple of stressors away from really being over the brink or being into high stress, which obviously can go into a lot of physical, mental, emotional problems. 
Um, are you familiar with the global, I think it's called the global assessment factor in psychiatric diagnostics, wherein when a person presents with whatever their, their you know, presenting condition is, one of the um, measures to diagnose is how many uh, stressors is that person experiencing in their life at, at the time of, um, of admission, say, to the hospital. Right. Well, you know, science um, defines stress um, differently than, than we tend to. It divides it into two things, and one is what you were just talking about, a stressor. And that's uh, anything that uh, anything that happens, any demand that's placed on you, any change that, that is kind of thrust upon you. And the assessment that you have to do something about it, along with the appraisal, that the, your inner resources or the resources you have externally um, are overwhelmed by this stressor. And so the stressor is the thing that's on the outside. It can be anything. And stress is your internal reaction to that. And so one of the things that science also has found, particularly through the process of this discovery of neuroplasticity, the ability of attitude to change our brain, is that one of the most powerful resources a human being has at their disposal is their attitude. And if your attitude is such that you look at a situation and you become frightened by it, you become afraid of it, it's the same thing as saying that you've become stressed by it. And the correction that you need to make is to make a shift in attitude to an attitude in which you, you're no longer afraid of it and you're able to meet it, respond to it, accept it, move through it, deal with it, move forward with it. Or, or, or I would suggest that even if we are afraid to continue to move forward and not be afraid of the experience of being afraid. Yes, that's a good place to start. Definitely a good place to start. And that's where the, meditation can come in and helping us deal with the anxiety and that physical experience present in the body. That's right. And, and meditation really helps, uh, helps us to understand that, you know, a great deal of what, what we end up being afraid of is mind-made is that we generated ourselves, you know, we, we, we create the picture ourselves. It's what Mark Twain meant when he said, my life has been a series of terrible calamities, some of which actually happened, you know. It's like that. We, 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 the, the mind makes up emergencies that the brain believes are real, and when the brain believes they are real, it releases stress hormones, and stress hormones flood into the brain, and what, that, what happens physiologically is those stress hormones cause that higher brain function, that higher, those networks producing higher brain function to actually shrink, and it also causes the more primitive brain functions, the, the stuff that kicks you into fight or flight to actually expand, and so by virtue of being chronically stressed or chronically afraid, you're actually creating a brain in which you're dumbing it down and, you, and, and you're amping it up in terms of its reactivity, its emotional reactivity to things. But the good news is all that's reversible. All that's reversible. I think we did the retreat for the 12-step Buddhist group um, up at Brighton Bush a couple of weekends ago. And uh, one of the therapists there said, you know, the, the old reaction used to be fight or flight. And uh, I can't remember exactly what the, the new one is, if it starts with an F, but we were talking about relaxing. So fight, flight, or relax. Relaxation response. Feel. Be aware of it. Awareness is, uh, um, you know, it's remarkably simple. What it takes 
to make the shift from lower brain function to higher brain function, from fearful and stressed to peaceful, uh, peaceful in a, in a dynamic way. And when I'm saying, when I'm talking about peaceful, I'm talking about it in neurological terms. I'm not talking about a place, a, a, a state of mind that makes you complacent or withdraw from the world, but a way in which you can actively and positively respond and relate and move forward whatever the world throws at you. And one of the things we're finding out in neuroscience is what we know as psychology and spirituality all along. And that is, is that the world is full of things that we don't control. In fact, that's the way I define the world. Anything that we don't control, like the weather, like our wife or husband, like what's going to happen with the economy, all of those things we don't control, I call the world. And we can influence the world, but we never completely control it. The only one thing we, we totally control is our attitude, the relationship we form with the, with the world. And what neuroscience has discovered that to the degree that our attitude is increasingly peaceful, dynamically peaceful, we end up growing a brain that allows us to be pretty powerful in the world, allows us to create positive relationships with people, to be a creative problem solver. You know, you We've all gone through the thing where we've been frightened by a piece of news and, and it, you know, proliferated into a whole big calamity. And then when we calmed down and got our, got, got our senses back, we began to see solutions. We began to see there's, there's a way of dealing with this. Well, that, that's exactly the, the experience we have when our brain switches control from those primitive areas up to yeah. the higher we get creative. We see, we see solutions. Now, you know, addicts are not traditionally a create. Well, we're creative problem solvers if you talk about being creative in order to get our drink fix, pill, drug, relationship, uh, gambling set up, uh, online porn, whatever we happen to be addicted to. We're creative problem solvers when it comes to getting the fix, but um, not really so much in dealing with our environment and learning to cope effectively with our own internal emotional experience. And we have a, a saying in the 12-step world um, that addicts tend to pole vault over mouse turds and um, un underreact to massive crisis, crises. Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, is interesting about alcohol, oftentimes people uh, grab for a drink at the end of a stressful day. They're looking for some pain relief. And actually, the, the um, neurological effect of taking a drink is that it actually produces a, a condition that's, that's similar to a stress reaction in the brain, a fight-or-flight stress reaction. And the more stressed we are, you know, you're compounding it with drinking, the more the tendency is that you become habituated to a behavior, you get locked into a behavior, you can't see beyond it. And, you know, like with anything that gets habituated, um, you, you, you do, you continue to like pole vault over a mouse turd, even though it doesn't produce any effect of any value in your life whatsoever. Um, that's that's a, a real problem. And they even see it in people who, who are not Addict, addicted to anything, but they're they're beginning to think that they may be addicted to their own adrenaline system. But they get locked into that habituated behavior; they can't see beyond it. When they do begin to make this shift in attitude, and meditation is a great way to get to 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 affect this shift, then that that problem begins to resolve itself, and they they can they can begin to see 
a different way of behaving that's going to lead to a result that's going to create the experience that they want to have. Yeah, yeah. We have to stop and sit still long enough to see what's going on. And you know, in the Dharma, we um, we begin with um, examining or being aware of or being present with, present to, present as our condition. You know, but if we're running, if we're in fight or flight, or if we're in that, well, in the in the HBO series on addiction, um, I think it's the NIH, maybe uh, uh, National Institute for Drug Abuse. They did all this uh, research about, and I talked about this in my book, about this um, stop system, this very primitive system. We have a stop system and we have a go system. And in the addict, uh, the go system is literally that, survival mode in other words at the at the um maybe beyond an emotional level at maybe at a neurological level we feel that if we don't get that drug of choice if we don't get that fix we're literally going to die and we don't and so we've got a a ghost system which is overcharged and um doesn't know how to discern between appropriate measures which are going to bring positive results and then we've got a stop system, which really is fried. It doesn't work at all uh, until we retrain it. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. That's a problem. You know, one of the things that I do in coaching with people and in workshops that I do with people is a exercise called uh, What Am I Afraid Of? And one of the things that you have with people is that uh, they'll begin to list Something will come up, you know, Some they'll have a problem with their boss that something that didn't go well, or at least that they perceived or misperceived didn't go well. And, and then they become frightened, they become stressed, they ruminate over it. And then when they show up at my doorstep, you know, we, they're, they're pretty frightened, they're pretty freaked out. They're, they're not, they're not. They're, they're basically immobilized by their own fear. Right. And when we investigate it, we start off with, okay, this thing that happened with your bot, what are you afraid of? I'm afraid he doesn't like me anymore. I'm afraid he doesn't value me anymore. And if he doesn't value me anymore, what are you afraid of? I'm afraid he's going to fire me. And if you're afraid he's going to fire you, what are you afraid of? And people go down the – I really encourage them to let their primitive brain do the talking, not to edit any of it out. And invariably, people reach the bottom where they see themselves pushing a shopping cart full of their belongings down Main Street, even though they're gainfully employed and, and have, a, have a stock portfolio. And then beyond that, if we go beyond that, they're afraid they're going to die. They're going to die a meaningless life, unloved by anybody. Well, that bottom that they reach where they're afraid that they're going to die is the primitive brain. The primitive brain has uh, is... Is, is there to do one thing is make sure that you survive and everything it witnesses to is your death is you're going to get murdered you're going to get taken out by something it's got its eye on that all the time and unfortunately the primitive brain the particularly the amygdala the fear center that's running all of this stuff uh has the intelligence of a two-year-old that stops developing in the brain at the age of two. It's why when you see somebody in a full-blown stress reaction acting out, you say, yeah, you're acting like a two-year-old. Well, neurologically, you're correct. They are. Well, that's, the reasoning is the same. And one of the things that we found in, in neuroscience is that, you, you know, in the same way you can't reason with a two-year-old when they're in a, in a reaction, same thing is true with, with, a, with an adult. You have to distract them from it. And so 
part of the process is for, for people to begin to learn how they can stop believing what it is that this, this primitive red brain is telling them and distract their mind over here, get it away from there, think about something else, do something else. And gradually what will happen is things will settle down and your, your higher brain will come on board and it will recognize that what you were just looking at was pure illusion. Now, the idea of mirror neurons is something that um, I saw the other day on a Charlie Rose episode. I think it was vo uh, volume three of uh, the episode on the brain series that they're doing. And they talked about the social brain and mirror neurons and how the um, activity which goes on at a neurological level when I witness you performing an act, an, an, you know, when an event is occurring outside of me, the actual uh, same um, neurons are firing within my own brain as if I am the person having that experience. So that made me wonder, and which is why I contacted you to do the, the show today, that made me wonder if we can get a deeper explanation of how that works, and my particular interest in this is that in recovery, we know we go to 12-step meetings and we learn from other people who are clean and sober and are able to cope through these stressors, these normal stressors or these heavy-duty uh, crises that occur. And I want to know a little bit more about how what role mirror neurons might play in that type of process, you know, specifically as it would pertain to the social brain and being in a, in a, in a support group type environment? Right. Well, that's a very good question. And it does. It does relate directly. Well, just to go back to what you were just saying about how mirror neurons work, um, the way they discovered them is that they discovered them in a monkey. And um, they had this monkey all wired up. And they had a monkey in another cage wired up. And this monkey uh, in cage A reached over to grab for a peanut. And the high-tech instrumentation lit up, uh, part, showing that a part of his brain was activated by picking up this peanut, deshelling it, and eating it. But the interesting thing was is in the monkey in the other cage who did not have a peanut, this, the very exact same areas of the brain lit up. In other words, the... the, the um, the monkey who didn't have a peanut was marrying what was going on in the brain of the monkey that did have a peanut. And, um, and they call so, that localization. Right. And that there are neurons that in your brain that locate where the peanut is, whether it's up high, down low, right in front of you. There are neurons that move your, your arm to pick up the peanut. They, they will shape your fingers to grasp that peanut, they will give your your fingers the information not to squeeze too hard because it's delicate. How to bring it to your mouth? All of that is is uh, happy is lighting up in the brain of the monkey that has a peanut at the same time in another monkey that isn't. It was remarkable, and so they began to explore that in human beings. You know what's that look like inside of human beings? And in human beings, it's a uh, it's a very um, complex system, and it involves not just a, a set of uh, mirror neurons, but it's, it's the way in which various parts of the brain are linked up. Um, and when 
part of the theory that's kind of interesting and how it, it eventually leads to what goes on in people when they're in a support group is that they believe now that when we were that our distant ancestors in developing language they initially developed language through gesturing through sign language that it was the spoken language was not the the thing that it, actually you know when you think from an evolutionary point of view um Using sign language is more flexible. You can talk to more people. You can talk cross-culturally, cross-tribally, that kind of thing. Um, and there's there's a there, there's a long story as to why they think that, but it but it, it it looks pretty much like that. That the way we started to develop language by using our hands, and um, it wasn't that we were that the, the so. As we were beginning to communicate with each other using sign language, we also had to be very um, astute about also reading uh, the the body language of another person, the facial expression of another person, the scent that they were giving off, all of the things that would tell you whether or not this person is safe or this person is is dangerous, whether or not you can trust this person or whether or not you ought to back off from this person, whether or not this person's holding a weapon or whether or not this person really means to do, to do well by you. You need to read all of those kinds of things. And um, what we developed in an evolutionary way is we developed a brain that was exquisitely adept at reading another human being to the point where it's, you can, it's fair to say that mirror neurons mean that we are practically in another person's mind. So that... Uh, and. It doesn't work. They're also fine. Doesn't work as well virtually. But when we're we're together one on one, we are actually reading each other in very very subtle ways, uh, ways that we're not even aware of. Um, and so, when you have somebody, so the question is, what you're trying to do in a support group is create safety. And so, how how do you behave? How do you gesture? How do you hold a body language? How do you communicate in words in ways that's going to light up the mirror neurons in another person who needs help in a way in which makes that person feel safe, in a way in which that makes that person feel received and understood, and way in which that person feels your compassion and your empathy for them. Mm. And there are three attitudes that do that, and those these three attitudes have been around for a long time. They come out of a... a the uh, psychology of Carl Rogers called the person-centered approach. And um, these three attitudes create, uh, light up mirror neurons that will create um, a situation that, that's highly therapeutic, that's essentially psychologically healing, not only for the person on the receiving end of it, but for both people, the giver and the receiver. And you were a uh, long-time uh client and student and friend of Carl Rogers, correct? Right. I was. All three. <laughs> well, uh, let's wrap up with those three attitudes and um, we'll put those out there for people to consider. And I think we're going to have to continue the conversation again um, okay. and to probe this a little bit more deeply. But uh, give us an idea what the three attitudes might be and uh, if you have any thoughts on how um, addicts in recovery might apply those to their situation in some in some you know down and dirty kind of easy easy to remember uh, manner. Yeah, it is easy. It's simple. 
It's simple. May not be. They may not always be easy. It takes willingness for to make it easy. Well, the first attitude is genuineness. Uh, it's realness. It's you know the more a person is truly himself, herself in the relationship, putting up no professional front, no facade, the greater the resonance. The more likelihood that the relationship it will create an environment for change and growth for both people. So the first thing is be yourself. And, and be open to, to, to your own uh, experience in the relationship. The second attitude, the second quality is um, creating, for creating this climate of connection, is acceptance. Complete and total acceptance of the person. Rogers called it unconditional positive regard. In other words, we value the person, the other person, in a total way rather than a conditional way. Um, for, for an addict, whether that person re returns to addiction or not, we, what we do is maintain an attitude of unconditional positive regard for them as a human being. And we're willing for the other person to be whatever immediate feeling they're experiencing, whether it's confusion or resentment or fear or, or courage, love, pride, self-worth. Um, we, 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 we approach the person in a total way. And the last, which, which um, you know, relates to your Buddhism, is empathic understanding. And this is, uh, we perceive the person um, from their point of view um, with accuracy. You know, it's not only their emotional state and what they're stating, but what's, what we feel that's kind of underneath, down deep. Let those mirror neurons give us some information about what's going on with this person. And, you know, it's about entering another person's private world so completely that we really lose all desire to judge them in any way. Um, we, you, you get those three attitudes working in a relationship, and Carl Rogers said that uh, the change and healing was inevitable. So if you want a tool, I can give you a quick and dirty tool mm. that will get you started in this direction. Absolutely. The first one I call, this is a tool for, for resonance, and uh, the first one is just listening. You know, drop your point of view for the moment and really listen to the other person. Uh, be empathic, a willingness to perceive their point of view, uh, you know, along with the, the emotional components and meanings that they have, and enter their private world. And again, so completely that it doesn't even occur to you to judge them. And then the second thing you can do is periodically, I call this mirroring, periodically track the emotional flow of going on. Don't just stay tuned into the words. Remember, we evolved out of, out of a deeper level of communication in which we felt the whole person in an organic kind of way. So track their emotional flow, their body language, their tone of voice, um, their intentions, what you think their intentions might be. Pretend to be in that person's mental shoes. Even feeling your brain, you know, some people can actually feel their parts of their brain sort of lighting up, coming alive as they're listening to this person. And then the last thing you can do is just periodically kind of get up there around 30,000 feet and look down at the communications, get a bird's eye view of yourself, what's happening, is there a feeling of resonance or tentativeness in the way the communication is going, or is it even moving into dissonance? into separation. What's your body language communicating? Your body language. Do you seem to be interested in what this person's saying? Do you seem to be connecting with them? You know, you can ask yourself at that point, what could you change to make the interaction more powerful? 
And those are three things you can do to practice um, bringing these attitudes more into play as you relate to somebody, particularly if, if who you're relating to needs your help. Right, and we do this in meetings as well. And this is something I talked about in the 12th Step Buddhist in terms of practicing presence uh, in meetings as opposed to being bored in meetings. But that's a whole other topic. I just remember a guy, uh, one new guy uh, to the recovery asked me one time, he says, what are you doing over there? Are you meditating? Well, how come you're sitting there, you know, looking like you're meditating? And I said, because I'm really trying to go within myself and really focus and pay, and pay attention to what's being shared and to really connect with that other person. Um, well, we've been speaking with Don Goey. Now, am I pronouncing your last name right? Yep. Don Goey, uh, author of Mystic Cool. We, uh, uh, we do share the same publisher, uh, The Amazing Beyond Words. And um, I trust your book's doing well out there, Don? It's doing good. All right. And we're going to get some more copies uh, out there with a link uh, to the book on the 12stepbuddhist.com. Um, Don, uh, we're going to continue the conversation. Thank you so much for uh, showing up online today and uh, giving us some excellent information about our brains. Uh, thank you for having me.